Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is, wherever you happen to be joining us from here on the Hope Rising Ministries podcast. We're excited and thankful that you are making this time to spend with us as we dive into yet another episode of the HRM podcast where we've been walking through and taking a look at church history. We started all the way back at the beginning uh, around the the first century, and now we are leading into the turn of the millennium, uh, beginning with the 11th century. And so I'm excited to be able to dive into that today. If it is your first time joining us, my name is Alex, and I am excited and thankful for this opportunity to spend with you for a little bit as we unpack some of church history, just to give you a, a small taste and a glimpse of what things have happened to, you know, sort of shape the church and the teachings that we have today and why they are the way they are in some cases. But I am excited that you are spending your time with us. If you have any questions, any thoughts, any comments that you would like to share or present during the episode as you hear uh, certain points being shared, please feel free to reach out you can send us an email at info at hoperisingministries.cc or if you're on facebook find us at hope rising ministries sc we would love to connect with you hear from you uh, even just know where you're listening from or how long you've been listening but yeah any any questions any encouragement any feedback both positive and negative we would love to love to hear it and love to hear from you guys uh, we really appreciate those who take time to reach out to us but we're excited and thankful again for another opportunity as we dive into to church history and kind of continue the topic of conversation here and we're actually on episode which is really crazy to imagine and to think but we're on episode 82 episode 82 of the HRM podcast and this is if I am not mistaken let me just double check my notes here to to confirm and make sure but this would be the fourth episode the part part four I guess if you want to call it that of church history that we've walked through and as I mentioned, we've started all the way back at the beginning of the, the first century as as Jesus was really establishing his church. And then things that would happen there uh, following his return to heaven and then the apostles taking lead and taking charge in the church and spreading the church across the known world there at the time. And then things that happen thereafter to continue building, establishing, and really forming the church and securing the church as to what what should be taught and what uh, what beliefs should be shared and what was actually you know taught as as core fundamental and foundational beliefs uh, there as we you know walk through. In case it is your first time, I'll just kind of give you a, a little recap there but as we walk through the really what we would call the early church of the first second and third centuries as uh at that time which you know was really difficult for christians and for those of the church as there was a lot of persecution um a lot of people fighting against christians were not very very liked or very welcomed in in many cases especially there in rome and in the surrounding areas and so there was a lot that they had to face both externally and internally also with heretic or heretical teaching uh, people trying to teach things that jesus did not teach and 
trying to basically lead people astray from the core and fundamental teachings of Jesus. And then into the 4th, 5th, and 6th century as really things start to shift for Christianity, for the church, as it becomes more established and more welcomed, uh, eventually becoming um, a legalized faith inside of Rome, and then one day uh, within the 4th century becoming the official religion of Rome, uh, which was you know imposed and put in place by Roman Emperor Theodosius uh, around 380 AD, I believe it was. And so, you know, a lot of things started to shift there in, in the third, fourth, and or fourth, fifth, and sixth century. And then a lot of growth as well and expansion with people going on missions and, and taking the gospel around the world to different parts of the world. And then we uh, most recently touched and kind of took a glimpse through. 7th, 8th, ninth, and a little bit of the 10th century there as we rounded out the first millennium and just took a look at, you know, how the church had grown and progressed and sort of um, expanded and, and even changed in some, some cases over time and how the influence there of the world around the church was kind of impacting the church in particular ways, and then also how the the church was influencing the world around it, and so there's you know a lot of things that that take place that lead us up to where we're going to pick up and start talking about today in 1000 um, A.D. And so as we're approaching this this time of the 11th century, and if you recall in you know the the previous episode, there were a lot of tensions. Um, internally and, and some externally there with the church that were taking place leading up to uh, 1000 AD. And in that, the church itself is starting to sort of have some internal conflicts that take place, which we've touched on a couple of those where, you know, there were be, be false teachers or heretical teachers who were teaching things against what Jesus taught and the core values that were, you know, really, really uh, taught and presented by the apostles. And so leading up to this there, you know, over time, there are bits and pieces. There are moments of conflict and moments of contention amongst those inside the church. And so what we're going to touch on today and one of the big, uh, big events, uh, biggest events really um, kind of leading up to this. And we'll, we'll see the impact that it has that takes place there in the 11th century in the, the year of 1054 AD is something called the Great Schism. And this is also at times referred to as the East-West Schism. And we'll talk about, you know, a little bit of why that is. But ultimately what this event and what what takes place here is caused by several disagreements within the church within what is you know um, especially at that time known as really the the western and the eastern churches and so there in rome something that you know is important to remember when we're talking about west east there within that that area in that space is that the Roman Empire had already been split into two sort of territories or kingdoms. 
And so that's where the idea of East and West comes from when we're talking about the the schism itself and the Western church versus the Eastern church. And, and also, you know, kind of interchangeably, you may hear the Western church be referred to as what we know now today as the Roman Catholic church. And then the Eastern church, uh, you may have, have heard and may hear it referred to as the Eastern Orthodox church. And so that's where these two churches basically separate this is where the, you know this is where there has been really one single church denomination for christianity and here's one of the big splits that happened to create these two separate denominations uh, but still christians nonetheless but just with what they view and what they see is pretty major disagreements. And so that's where all of this comes from leading into 1054. And so it wasn't really over just one single incident, but as most, you know, as most arguments and, and disagreements are, um, there were multiple things leading up to this. And then it was really one thing that just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And so remembering and, and sort of stepping back just a little bit, it was around um, 330 A.D. The emperor Constantine moved the capital from Rome to uh, Constantinople. And so both of these territories, both the east and the west, both of these kingdoms or, or empires, however you want to think of them, they both had their own separate leaders from a political, you know, sort of like state standpoint, as well as from the church. So it wasn't just one single leader of the church or one, you know, point person of the church, but rather there were there were two for each, or there was one for each, rather, of the areas and the territories. And so it, it was actually, I believe, around 395 A.D. that uh, Theodosius was the last one to, to truly rule over both of them uh, as a single emperor, as a single, um, you know, kind of leader for the two. And so they, as I mentioned, they each had their own separate church leaders. And so the West in this, you know, in, over time, uh, as they split, they were not equally sort of protected and, and kind of operating or existing equally in some cases. And so the West was continuously attacked by barbarian tribes, uh, while the East was much more stable and seemed to be more secure and didn't have quite the um, problems that the, that the West territory was having. And so this then led into other things such as their uh, primary languages began to differ um, and, and other other beliefs, other practices when it came to sacraments such as communion, um, you know, became a, a question or a point of contention as they were differing on whether or not during communion that the... Um, the allowance of unleavened bread uh, should be used during uh, communion, and so there were there were a number of things such as this uh, that began to you know um, bubble up over time, but ultimately in 1054, what actually takes place leading up to that, 
that sort of is the last straw between the two churches is that the um, Pope, who is the religious leader of Rome, so this would be the Western Church, uh, wants to add something and make a change to the Nicene Creed. And it's related to the Trinity. Now, if you remember, and let me just go back here and I will read the portion of the Nicene Creed. Let me see if I can grab that real quick. Okay, so the Nicene Creed, it says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And then it goes on and says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified um, for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his, or his kingdom will never end. Now, this is where... Um, it stated uh, around the belief of the Holy Spirit. And it says, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father. Now, in the original Nicene Creed, which was put in place um, sometime in 300 AD, in, in the, the 4th century, um, around that time, 325 A.D., I believe, is, is the year um, that the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea was, was gathered and called uh, to order. And then that's when the Nicene Creed came about. And so that portion right there about the Holy Spirit coming from the Father. Now, everything had been, you know, agreed upon and everything was good at that point for roughly the next you know, I guess 700 years. And then it was leading up to 1054 when, when the Pope, again, the religious leader of Rome, so the Western Church, wants to make a change and add something to the creed. And what this is referred to, maybe you've heard this, maybe not, but if you ever hear the phililoquy controversy, it's basically the Latin word meaning and from the Son. And so the phililoquy clause stated that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son instead of only from the Father as in the original version. Now, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the major issues here um, could have been the fact that the Pope, again, the religious leader in Rome, whereas in the Western, you know, that was in the Western side. And then in the Eastern side was the patriarch of Constantinople. That was the, you know, the, the religious leader for the church there within the East. Now, the Pope does not present to or um, converse with and run this by the patriarch of Constantinople, but rather the changes you know, made and is inserted into the Nicene Creed 
And that is actually there still today, um, where now it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, and so at that time, in 1054 AD, when this is taking place, the patriarch disagrees very strongly, as you know, evident by the schism, but disagrees very strongly and pushes back and really fights back against it. Ultimately, there is no resolution between the two sides. And they end up excommunicating each other. So the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope just excommunicate each other, you know, from from the church. And so thus dividing the Christian church now into two factions, two denominations, um, two, you know, groups uh, of Christians that are separated primarily by this, you know, the last straw there, but then also other disagreements and sort of um, opinions and beliefs on how things should be done for, you know, various religious practices and, and sacraments. And so now, today, we still have, and as a result of this, we have the Roman Catholic Church, which is, you know, again, seen as the Western Church and the, the Western faith here. And then we have the Eastern Orthodox Church, both of which are, I believe, uh, the two largest Christian, um, uh, the two largest Christian denominations uh, today, and so the divide at this, you know, at this time in 1054, would continue really to grow between the East and the West churches, roughly for the next, you know, 200 years or so, uh, leading to not only just disagreements. Um, you know, verbally in what they believe to be done in certain practices, but it also leads to physical and violent altercations between the two. And then I believe it was uh, in 1965, the Pope of Rome and the Patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church lifted, mutually lifted the excommunication decrees um, that were placed on, you know, each, each, each other. Uh, essentially, and so there is some um, more friendly resolution and agreement amongst the two to to kind of bring some resolve and some resolution to what they were going through, and, and what ultimately caused them to split in, there in the you know 11th century. But that is that is one of the biggest um, events that take place there in the 11th century, causing the divide amongst the the christian church and you know again something that we still see the effects of and the result of today and not that you know they are one and the same at this point but at least there has been some uh some effort to sort of reconcile between the two churches and between the two groups and so that was one of the big events of the 11th century. So something else that sort of takes place there around that same time, but then, you know, uh, shortly after as well. There's a, a man named, um, his birth name anyway, is Hildebrand, uh, born in 1020. And eventually he would become and be known as Pope Gregory VII. And he eventually dies in 1085. But during his lifetime, some of the influence and the impact of what he had that that really sort of, uh, again, 
uh, pushed the the church in the direction that it was going and some of what we you know uh, see even today and the position of pope and sort of their role um and so again he he was born in 1020 uh, birth name was hildebrand and he was said to have and be a very brilliant mind, just a, just a very brilliant, smart um, individual. And so he is even by some often considered as one of the greatest popes of the medieval church in that time. And he started out in 1045. He was actually uh, chaplain for, I believe it was the Pope John Grotnian. And from there, um, eventually in 1073, began to rule as Pope and, and take that position of authority. Now, where his influence and one of the things that he really did um, during his time was his view of authority uh, for the Pope and that particular position. And so he viewed his authority as Pope as extending beyond all others. So that also includes those in the political sort of state position, right? So he believed that the Pope was was greater than all other leaders, including the Emperor. Well, the Emperor at that time, Henry the, I believe, the Fourth, uh, disagreed quite heavily with that. He essentially calls together a council, um, an impromptu council of Christians, and they reject Gregory's authority. And by doing this, Gregory then in turn retaliates and essentially excommunicates Henry and releases all people from any responsibility to serve um, or, or anything that he is, you know, kind of degreed. He, he, Pope Henry basically says, hey, you are no longer held by anything that uh, the emperor has imposed. And then through some time, Henry eventually backs down, and so he submits to the pope's authority. And there's, a, there's quite an interesting story. If you ever have some time, go um, try to look up the, the story and what took place between Emperor Henry the Fourth and Pope Gregory the Seventh, and just yeah, there's there's a lot that goes on there. Um, James White explains it pretty well, but this is the really the height of papal authority as at this moment and at this time the emperor is really submitting to the pope, and so the pope is now you know the top dog, the leader. Um, the point of the spear there within the the Roman Empire at that point, and so <clears throat> you know this is this is pretty uh, pretty dramatic and, and pretty impactful there going forward for uh, for the church for the popes and, and the papacy as it would move forward, and so then coming out of the 11th century through the 12th. 13th, 14th, and then, you know, for, for some, some years uh, beyond that, but across the 12th, 13th, 14th century, this is really a time that is known and categorized as um, scholasticism. And so basically this is a, a point in time when church leaders and really theologians 
of the time begin to write works about Christian doctrine. Um, and not just simply about what they believe, but more of a logical and using theories and using very strong um, arguments, both from a, a philosophical standpoint as well, but using, you know, well-sounded, very deep, in-depth um, arguments about God and Christianity. And so it some of the you know um, names that you may hear uh, today that were heavily involved in that time uh, were you know were birthed and were living in that that time frame to create these um, these documents and what we know today. And so uh, a few of those are Abelard, um, Lombard, Aquinas. And there's many, many, many others to name that help to create the doctrine and the arguments that are often referred to in debates and discussions today as to the proof of Christianity, why Christianity is true, why God is real, those types of things. And so theology and the work that was done there really becomes the groundwork for a lot of other areas of learning that we may even see today and has tons of influence in the the studies and the things that took place from that point forward. And so, you know, one of the one of the or I guess really two of the bigger sort of arguments and viewpoints were realism and nominalism. And so in that time Realism was uh, basically a view of trying to prove that God existed. And nominalism was more of the view that said, well, you cannot really prove that God existed the way that you can, um, you know, prove something of reality. And so one, one example, and, and it gets incredibly confusing. So if you like to read and that thing and that type of um you know, uh, arguments and discussions really interest you, go look it up, you know, nominalism versus realism and, and how they differ. But one of the ways that you can sort of think about it is that nominalism holds this, um, this view that abstract arguments or universals, things that are just universally accepted, um, you know, an essence of something, right? How do you prove an essence of something? But things such as that uh, are more for the linguistic convention to be able to name or describe something rather than being able to truly prove that thing. And one that always interests me and, and is is kind of, you know, thought provoking in some ways is for the nominalists, things such as numbers and colors and concepts and even ideas Right, are really used to describe physical objects. So uh, a nominalist would say that you cannot prove the color red or you cannot prove the number 12, right? These are just things that are used, terms that, and descriptions that are used to, um, to identify or categorize or, you know, describe certain things. And so... That's where the realism versus nominalism discussion and debate 
you know, kind of kind of takes place is how you prove versus the things that you cannot prove that just have to be accepted and are used, you know, um, again, more universally rather than, hey, you can prove the number 12. Well, how do you prove the number 12? What does that mean? And so that's where the differing opinions and, and viewpoints there come in. And that was one of the big things that were taking place there in the 12th, 13th, 14th century was the uh, creation of those arguments and being able to defend and reason amongst them. And so, you know, um, someone else who was very influential uh, and important in the church during that time was Anselm of Canterbury, I uh, believe lived around 1033 to 1109 A.D. He actually becomes the archbishop in 1093, and his motto is, I believe so that I may know. And so essentially he you know, states and pushes for the fact that faith comes before knowledge. So you have to have faith in something to then have a knowledge about that thing. And so he created and come up with the ontological argument. And so I'm just going to kind of read um, some definition here for you, because, again, this is something that, you know, is kind of kind of confusing and may take you a few times to read through it to really understand it before you, you know, it kind of clicks for you a little bit. But he basically, and this argument, the ontological argument, begins with the concept of God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So God is the greatest thing that you can imagine. There's nothing greater than God. And with that, let me... Uh, Hang on, sorry, my notes, uh, my notes slid on me here. But with that, as he makes that you know sort of statement that God is the highest, greatest, and utmost being. Okay, so then one um, one piece of this states, and this is kind of the the definition there of the argument: to think of such a being as existing only in thought and not also in reality, involves a contradiction, since a being that lacks real existence is not a being than which none greater can be conceived. A yet greater being would be one with the further attribute of existence. Thus, the unsurpassably perfect being must exist. Otherwise, it would not be unsurpassably perfect. This is among the most discussed and contested arguments in the history of thought. So this is, you know, that kind of sums up the, the um, reasoning and sort of the, the defense there of the ontological argument is that in order to really, you know, think of God in that way, he therefore exists. And so that was, you know, one influential person there during that time of scholasticism and and really that sort of, you know, gave birth and, and really pushed for the arguments and things that are even used today in defense of belief in God. And to be able to, you know, argue for the, the existence of God himself. And so then um, someone who had sort of a, a opposite 
thought process there, canon of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the motto was, I know that I may believe. So rather that knowing then therefore allows us to believe, you know, through the, the, just the, the reality of the logical existence of such, you know, such things, such belief. And so, and then someone else just to, you know, notate and, and, kind of touch on a little bit is Peter Abelard. Uh, Abelard is considered one of the greatest uh, 12th century Catholic philosophers um, of the time and basically he argued that God in the universe can and should be known via you know logic as well as via the emotions and the experience and so he coined the um, is credited for coining the term theology uh, for the religious branch of philosophical tradition and teaching and, and things of that nature. And so he also had a lot of influence. And there's so many others that we could spend, you know, hours upon hours of actually looking at their influence and their impact in the church and um, just in general in the world around them through the the teachings and the the arguments and things that they created, the documentation and whatnot, to help in the defense of the gospel, to help in the defense of the argument for God. And so these individuals had so much influence and so much impact, not only on their time and the people that were you know around them, but also even influence in arguments that are used today for Christianity. And so there's a lot that takes place in the church um, during this time uh, of really learning and um, establishing these types of defenses and arguments for Christianity that are very influential and very, uh, very prominent today in being able to argue for, again, as I, I mentioned, the existence of God and the really the the belief uh, and the um, the trueness of Christianity. And so all of that now gets us really through you know the next, as I mentioned, two, three, four centuries leading up into the really the 16th century that we'll take a look at next and, and basically round out our church history series as we take a look at the, Next, really, really big event, um, which also had some impact and influence that we still are very aware of today, which is the Protestant Reformation that takes place in the um, 1500s. And so we'll look at that and we'll you know start to unpack that in the next episode. But yeah, that gets us up to, you know, as I mentioned, the 16th century. And so I hope and pray that you, you know, find a little bit of excitement and a little bit of fun in learning some of church history to, to sort of understand things that have influenced and impacted the church uh, and really helped us to still have those teachings and those understandings that were taught, you know, centuries ago and so, so, so many years prior. And so, yeah, if you know this helps you, this encourages you, we'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to reach out to us, send us an email or something um, at info at hoperisingministries.cc or find us on Facebook, leave a comment. We hope and pray it's been a blessing to you. We've enjoyed really kind of gathering and learning and studying ourselves. Um, but yeah, and this is just a taste of it. So, I mean, you could spend hours upon hours and days 
really digging deeper into each of these areas and events that happened throughout the centuries there within the church. But we hope and pray that you are blessed. And if there's anything that we can do for you, any questions we can answer, or if there's any way that we could be praying for you, we would love to do so. So please feel free to reach out to us. We hope that you'll join us again next time on the Hope Rising Ministries podcast. Thank you. God bless and have a great week. See you next time.